know, we're all on a quest to be happy. That's just this built-in human desire. We seek out what makes us happy. Uh, you can see this even in kids. Um, in fact, it's so easy to see in kids because they don't have a lot of the um, hang-ups and I don't know, polite tendencies that we try to teach. In fact, most of the time kids get in trouble, it's because they're chasing happiness in a way that kind of makes us as parents embarrassed and cringe, right? You know, like they'll, they'll say, I want this. They'll be rude. They'll be selfish. They'll throw fits. They'll throw tantrums just trying to get what makes them happy. And, and as adults, we grow up, and for the most part, we, we don't pursue it with such unhindered abandon, but in the same way, we still seek out what makes us happy. We want a life that has filled us with joy, that, that feels uh, satisfying, that makes us feel like we've contributed something to the world, that we've accomplished something uh, through work and, and through our effort, through what we've you know, tried to do. Um, we want to feel satisfied with what we have. We want to feel loved and to love in return. And all those things kind of come together to contribute to this sense of happiness with our lives. But though we want happiness, oftentimes we don't know where to look to find it. We don't know exactly where to go. In fact, that's one of the, um, the key ways that businesses make money, through ads telling us what's actually going to make us happy, trying to convince us uh, that, that what we need, what they have, is what will make us happy. And so we don't always know where to look. And so what we end up kind of doing, as we don't know where to look, is we kind of end up reaching for a lot of different things. Um, I don't know if this ever happened to you, but... It's happened to me a lot, um, where you, you'll be in a, a group of people or <clears throat> around a few people, maybe not a group as much anymore like we used to be, but you, you'll be with people, and something in the conversation will remind you of a joke or a story, and so you'll chime in like, oh yeah, that reminds me of, and you'll start in with the beginning of your joke or story, and then as you start getting into it, you realize that you don't remember the end of your joke or your story, <clears throat> and so you start to kind of panic and like, hopefully like reaching around, you're like, now what was that? Uh, who was it? They said something about this, and you kind of start mentally and verbally flailing around. If it's a story, you can start adding in, you know, details that don't really matter, so you just kind of start winding around, hoping that eventually you're going to come to the point of the story that, you know, you started with. But what ultimately happens a lot of the time is you start telling the story, you get everybody's attention focused on you, only to kind of like fizzle out and not really deliver on what you've promised. Now, like on those moments when you have a story or you lose your train of thought, in the middle of something, and you kind of start flailing trying to find it, that's kind of what a lot of us do when it comes to happiness. We all know we want happiness, but we don't know where to find it. And so most humans will have a season of their lives where we are like reaching for anything, grabbing onto anything that promises happiness or even gives us the appearance <clears throat> of happiness. And so we spend a lot of portion of our lives grasping for these random things um, that, that, again, just offer the slightest hope of happiness. Uh, when I was younger, I thought love would make me happy. And I, th I thought that was like the answer, right? And here's the thing. I didn't know that I thought that. I didn't know that I believed that love would make me happy. But I look back on how I lived <clears throat> in high school and college. And through high school, I was what I would call a serial dater. Like, I dated so many different people. And it wasn't because I was like some Casanova or anything. I was awesome. It was just because I just thought, this is, I, I need somebody to validate my existence. If somebody says that they care about me, that means that maybe my life has meaning and purpose, and that would fill this hole in my soul that would make me happy. 
And, you know, I remember um, one instance, I was having lunch with a friend and his girlfriend in, uh, this was about the time of college, but I went to high school with him, and uh, we were giving her a hard time because she did, she dated a lot of guys in high school too. And she said, well, why are you giving me a hard time? You dated a lot of girls too, man. And I said, no, not more. I didn't date more girls than you did guys. And so she kind of challenged me. You count all your girlfriends, I'll count all my boyfriends. And I had actually dated more girls than she did guys. And I was like, oh, man, okay, you know, we thought it was weird that I thought it was a problem for you, but that's, I did it, and nobody ever called me on it. And so, uh, but it was one of those things that, like, as I look back, I realized what I was doing was I was grasping for something to make me happy, to bring that happiness into my life. And so, that's what so many of us do in our own way. Some people do it their entire lives. Some people do it for a season. But we end up grabbing things that we think are going to, again, bring us that deep, lasting satisfaction with our life, whether it's acceptance from a certain group of people, whether it's romantic love, a certain level of career success, fame, popularity with people, uh, financial success, whatever it is, we're, we'll grab onto anything that offers us the slightest hope of happiness. Now, in the passage we're going to look at today, uh, we're going to gain some incredible insight into what can actually lead to a life of human happiness and satisfaction. And, and just to give you a little hint, it is not what you would expect. It's not anything that anybody really talks about or teaches. When you find books and, and people that claim to be experts in helping us have a happy life, none of them are saying that this, what we're going to talk about today, is the key to happiness. And so today we're also starting a series called Singing the Sacred, where we're going to spend a few weeks in the book of Psalms. And the Psalms are a, a really sizable book in the Bible. Now what we've been doing all year is we're doing this journey through Scripture, and we're going to stop it along the way and, and camp out at certain types of Scripture and sections of Scripture. And the Psalms is appropriate because it's a, a very unique book. It's a huge book, like I said. It's not the biggest book in terms of content, but the way it's formatted into these very skinny, poetic rows, it ends up taking up the most pages in our Bibles. So if you take almost any modern Bible and you flip it open right to the middle, you're going to be in a psalm, which makes it a really easy book to find. Now, when I became a Christian, I didn't know a lot about the Bible, naturally. And a lot of the Bible was really confusing and difficult for me to understand. And so when I found the Psalms, I didn't know what to make of it, okay? Because at first glimpse, like I said, first glimpse, like I said, it looked like poetry. It's formatted like these very skinny rows, like in stanzas and stuff, stuff like that. And that immediately gave me a sense of dread. Because any time in high school we studied poetry, I just, I hated it. Absolutely hated it. Now, some of you probably love poetry. I just didn't, at the time, appreciate the metaphorical language. I was like, just tell me the story straightforward. Like, give me, I don't want to have to guess what this thing means. Just tell me what you mean. Like, that's just kind of how my brain works naturally, right? And so <clears throat> I knew that anytime we got into the English section on poetry, that I was probably going to be miserable as our teacher gave us these things to interpret, and I probably wasn't going to get a good grade. So when I get to this huge book in the Bible and I find, oh man, it's all like poetry. This is awful. Like, am I going to have to read this whole thing? And so that kind of brought me a little bit of dread. But then you start reading it, and you almost start to get the sense that you're reading someone's diary. Like you're reading like the journal that they write down their secret prayers in. And you start to think, okay, what are these prayers? Is it poetry? And the answer is yes and yes, but that doesn't even give you the full picture of what the book of Psalms is about. Because in reality, it was the, the worship songbook of ancient Israel. 
And so, yes, it's like poetry in that songs are like poetry. And yes, it's prayer in that oftentimes the songs we sing in a worship setting are songs that draw out our emotions and draw out our prayers and reveal our love, expectancy, and hope to our great and, and amazing God. And so, the evidence that this is a songbook, by the way, are all over the place. When you look at the headings of many songs, it'll, it'll have little notes to the choir master. It'll talk about um, flutes and other instruments. There's even other little notations along the way that we don't even really know what they mean, but we can figure out they were probably some sort of musical note for a choir or, or a, the people playing the music or something. Um, but, but we don't know the melodies of these songs. But by God's grace, we have these beautiful words, which I have learned to appreciate, by the way. Uh, we have these beautiful words pre- preserved for us. And we can see this, this amazing songbook that Israel um, used at various times in their history. Now, one of the things that is so striking about the book of Psalms, when you're looking at it as, in terms of it being a book that is both songs to be sung in worship and a book that is you know, filled with prayers... The most striking thing is how honest the, these songs are. Like, almost too honest. They make us, it's uncomfortable at times how honest the psalms are. I mean, there's times where, where you know, it's overflowing with God, uh, praising God's goodness and his presence in their life and the way he's come through for us. But then there's these deep, painful laments. And sometimes these moments where they're crying out, God, where are you, will we'll end with this hopeful, you know, God, I know you're there. You've been through with me every other time, and you'll come through for me now. But every once in a while, there's a psalm that's just like, God, where are you? The end. And it's really hopeful, or hopeless, and kind of dreary. And it's like, can you imagine if we sang these really sad and depressing, hopeless songs at church, and it's like, okay, you may be seated, let's go. You know, That would be so weird, but yet some of those are. And some of them even feel incredibly inappropriate things to pray. And like I said, it's, they're so honest, we're almost uncomfortable with being that honest to God. Um, you know, we kind of have this sense like there's certain things we shouldn't pray. Like, I probably shouldn't pray, God, I'm so angry at you. God, I'm, I'm so mad you didn't do what I wanted you to do. Like, we feel like we shouldn't pray those kinds of things. Like, we shouldn't pray and, excuse me, and tell God, oh, God, I'm so mad at my neighbor. I, don't want, I hate him so much. I, I hope a meteor would fall out of the sky and hit him. Like, we don't want to pray those things. We feel like we shouldn't pray those things because if I pray that, then maybe God's going to send a meteor for me. So we got to, you know, be careful with what we pray. And, but yet, the Psalms are so incredibly raw, so incredibly honest. And what it shows us is that we can bring to God the full breadth of human emotion. We can come to him when we're angry at him. He can handle that. We can come to God when we feel hopeless and we feel like he's not coming through. We can bring all of that to God. There are times in the Psalms when you feel like this prayer is not really right, but it is always honest and it always can, again, reveal to us the the, the fact that God wants us to come to him with our open hearts because honestly he can see it anyway so what hiding it from him in our prayers and what we speak to him it's kind of a, a, a just a, a kind of a joke anyway for us to try to do that so there's there's some beautiful stuff in the psalms it's an incredibly valuable book but knowing all that let's get back to our talk about happiness and our pursuit of happiness that we're all on as we try to grab different things so we're going to start And a good place to start, Psalm 1. So if you have a Bible and you want to flip it open to the middle, that's a good place to try to find one. If you want to follow along on the screen, that's true, that's good as well. If you're watching at home, the verses will be on the screen for you. 
It says, blessed, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So we pause there. Now, the reason this is such a good place to start when we're talking about happiness is because at the very beginning of this verse, this word blessed, it's the Hebrew word ashrei. Kind of, it made me sound, when I heard it, and uh, you read it, it kind of makes you think ashtray, but it's ashray. And so, but the word, um, when we come across the word like blessed in scripture, like when I think I'm blessed, what I kind of have been taught by church is that the word blessed means I've had things given to me to the point where I'm sitting in a good spot. Like either God's people have been good to me, they've blessed me with kindness, or they've blessed me by giving me something I needed in a moment, or God has blessed me. But this isn't what we see here. This is not somebody who's been blessed because of something they've been given. And so when you start looking into it, this word actually can mean happy. Happy is the man who walks, and it goes on in the verse. Happy is the person, but it's not like this... Thin, fleeting happiness, like we often think of when we think of happiness. Like, oh, man, I went and saw this movie. It was hilarious. I laughed the whole time. It made me happy. Or my team won the game. That made me happy. That, it's not this momentary happiness. This is a deep satisfaction with life, that you are pleased with the, the fact that your life is overall moving in a good, general, solid, stable, holy direction. It's a person who can sit there and just look at their life and like, yes, things, maybe not everything's right, but, it's all, but, but my life's going good. And so it says, blessed is the man. And so this is a good place to start talking when we're talking about happiness. And so as we learn here, um, the person who has found di- uh, deep happiness didn't find it by following the wrong people. It talks about they didn't follow the, the advice of the wicked They didn't stand around hanging out with the sinners, didn't hang out with the scoffers. These are three distinct groups that we don't really have time to get into. But either way, you know, the names kind of tell you these aren't the best people to be hanging out with, right? And so you you look at this and you think, okay, so the, the person who's got a happy life, they didn't do it while hanging out with the wrong people. And that does make a lot of sense because I can't think of a lot of things that are more influential on our lives than the people we spend time with. I mean, uh, motivational speaker Jim Rohn uh, is famous for coming up uh, with the statement of saying that we are the average of the five people that we spend the most time with, that you're going to be kind of an average of the, of the five people that are closest to you or that you spend. I mean, that's kind of a, that can be an encouraging thing or it can be a scary thing depending on who you hang out with, right? I look back on some of the friend groups I've had at various points in my life and it's like, I'm Glad my face didn't end up on the mugshot section of my hometown's newspaper website, right? Like, I'm, I'm, well, that's really good for me. I'm glad that didn't work out, you know? But, but there's, so that can be encouraging or it can be scary, but that's what's, that's the, the thing with people. People just have a way of rubbing off on one another. And so you can be around people and they'll change the way you think. They'll cloud your ability to see what's wise as wise. And you can be around people whose thinking is skewed, and your thinking will start to be skewed. You, if, they think, um, if, they start to, if they see financial foolishness as financial genius, you can start to see some of that stuff. If they think things that are morally wrong are justified in their eyes, you can start to have this skewed view of morality as well. Um, and you'll be shaped by it. Your sense of right and wrong is shaped by the people you spend time with. Your sense of humor is shaped by the people you spend time with. Um, I mean, even your mannerisms can be shaped by the people you spend time with. You can just see that in, by where you live. I mean, you start to talk like the people where you live. My youth minister growing up, he moved to Fairfield, Illinois, which is in southern Illinois. And what I learned when I went to college, by the way, is that people thought I lived from the, I was from the deep south. 
because I was from southern Illinois, and I had apparently a bit of a twang to my voice. So he comes from Missouri, where he said things like crick. You know, and he said, had, had certain like, okay, you're really from out there is what I thought when he, you know, I was like, it's creek, man, come on, you, you know, and, and so he's, he, you know, so he has kind of this Missouri way of talking, and then over time, you know, he starts to talk like we do, and then after he left Fairfield, he went up to um, Minnesota for a few years, and then I started talking to him, and I'm like, what'd you do today? Oh, me and my friend went out on a boat. You know, a boat, oh, oh, is it a rowboat, or was it a motorboat, what kind of boat was it, you know, and I started giving him such a hard time, but it's like, he hadn't been there, but just a few years, and all of a sudden, his mannerisms, he started to change how he talked based on the people he was around. We cannot underestimate the power of the relationships in our lives. We just can't do it, and so this is saying that we will be shaped by the people we spend time with, and the guy who finds happiness, the people who find happiness are not going to spend time around the wrong people, can't spend time around the wrong people. And then it's going to go on, and again, it's going to give us a really weird twist on what we think is the source of happiness. And he says in verse 2, but his, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So instead of letting ourselves be influenced by those around us, instead what we see here is that God's word needs to be our primary influence. And that's a really weird thing. Like, it's a really weird comparison. Because what you normally see in, in, in Scripture where they hold up verses like bad people, it's usually they're holding them up against good people. It'll be like, the smart person does these things, but the dumb people do these things. But this isn't holding bad re- relationships up against good relationships. It's holding bad relationships up against the word of God. And so what that tells us, though, is that it's about what are we letting influence our lives? Because what influences our lives is what is changing the way and influencing the way that we make decisions. And ultimately, happiness is found through making good decisions. It's not about, you know, getting something in your life. It's not about getting enough money, getting job success. It's not about scrounging something. It's about day by day, every time we come to those little forks in the road, should I do this or this, knowing which choice is better and making the right choice day after day. The greatest way to lead to a deep satisfaction with your life is to day after day have the ability to make good decisions. And hanging around with the bad people, with the, the wrong people, help you, uh, does not help you make the right decisions in life. And this sounds so weird, talking about decisions, okay? Because, I mean, I don't hear that. You don't hear that. Well, what do you need to be happy Wise choices. Like that's, it's, it's always, you need to, you know, do what, you know, pursue your dreams, believe in yourself. You hear all these fluffy things in our culture. And even, like I said, ads are everywhere telling you that you need to, again, get stuff into your life to be happy. And what really is going to make you happy is a good night's sleep. And so you got to get a pillow, this pillow, our pillow. It's unlike any other pillow. You got to get it, this mattress or the right sheets or the right electronics in your life. My fo- this phone's better than that junky old phone that's a year old in your pocket. You need not this car but that car. And you know, I will admit though, when we got our, our the van that is currently the newest one that we own, um, when I had for the first time in my life got the ability to plug my phone into the sound system and play music, my music. Through the sound system, without having to go through all the trouble of making CDs like we used to do, right? That did make me a little bit happy. But overall, it's saying that, that happiness isn't found in those things. It's not in acquiring what you can acquire. Happiness is found through the decisions that you make as you choose time and time again the right choice. So, 
the, the two things that are held up in comparison to one another. It's what's going to be the influence. Is your influence going to be people, good or bad? Or is it gonna, are you going to let God's word determine the right choices in your life? And the righteous person, it says, is grounded in Scripture. They're grounded time and time again in what God's word says, seeking the understanding of what God wants for us as humans. Because, and because this person values God's opinion over other people's opinions, and they look to God's guidance, it says day and night. Now, this isn't, uh, when it says day and night, this doesn't mean somebody who's 24 hours a day reading the Bible, doing nothing else, you know. Let's assume that, you know, we could... Think about a normal life where you can go out with friends and have people over your house and go out to restaurants and do all the fun things, go to the movies. This isn't somebody who's like, get away from me, all you people. I'm going to have no life, and I'm going to sit here and read Scripture. No, when it says day and night, it just means somebody who saturates their life. God's Word is a constant presence in their life. It's not this thing they never think of. It's not the, the Bible that sits on the, on the coffee table or the bookshelf and gets dusty so that when they open it, they got to blow the dust off before they open it. No, God's word is somewhere in their life on a regular basis. And because of that, God's word shapes them and it guides them to see not just what is right, but what is wise, what is God-honoring, and what is nourishing to the heart, mind, and soul. Now, I love that, again, that it's presented not good relationships versus bad relationships, but bad relationships versus God's word. And I think part of the reason for that is when you are standing on God's word as the primary influencer in your life, that's when you gain the ability to discern what's a good relationship versus a bad one. Because one thing that's really weird, because we have such a deep need for people, is that you can be in a bad relationship and not know it. Because even a bad relationship will meet certain needs of loneliness and companionship in your life. But God's word can highlight the fact that Yes, you might have that, but the people that are around you, the people that are shaping you are not the right people. They're not shaping you to make the decisions that are going to lead your life the way you want to go. And so when we stand on God's word first and foremost, then we gain the ability to see what's a God-honoring relationship. What's a relationship that not only blesses the person that I am friends with, but also blesses me and helps us be mutually beneficial to one another. And so, yes, you can find belonging, acceptance, fun, and even care for the people in relationships that aren't very good for you. But God's word is always consistent, always true, always right. God's word points the best way forward time and time again. And the righteous person who saturates their lives with God's word day and night will be happy. Again, not fleeting happiness, but stable, solid happiness because they were, are making the right decisions based on God's guidance all the time. We go on to see the, the stability that this brings to someone's life in verses uh, 3 and 4. <clears throat> it says, He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Now this kind of gives us the picture of a tree that's growing right on the edge of a stream. Its roots go deep into the bed of the stream. When there's water in the stream, that's where you know, the tree's got plenty of um, you know, hydration. And, but it also gives us a picture like when things go maybe not great, when there's a little bit of a drought, because it, the tree's already where the water tends to flow and tends to congregate, that this tree is on solid ground and has a better chance of being healthy 
when rough things happen. And it says, this tree, every, if, when, it, when it gets, a, like I say, a drought comes, it stays green. Its leaf doesn't wither like the others do. And the other trees, they crumble and fall apart and they blow away. The leaves blow away in the wind. And so the righteous person who makes God's word the foundation for their lives becomes like that tree whose roots go deep into the bed of the stream. They're resilient. Yes, life can have good moments, but it can have bad moments and tragedies and painful situations. And, and in those moments, you're not affected by the pain that you're in, the pain of your friends, the bad advice of the people you're around. You can still stand on God's word that points you back to him and his trusting nature. And so it, is, it directs us and guides us in to, to be the best version of ourselves, no matter what life has to offer. And, you know, I look at this, again, this quest for happiness. Like we, all, we all fall into it. We all want to be happy. We all want to have a life that is filled with this stable level of satisfaction and joy. And yet, I've spent plenty of time looking for the wrong things, looking to find happiness in the wrong places, whether it was um, love, whether it was my job, my kids, having certain stuff. I'm really susceptible to thinking in moments that stuff is going to make me happy. And here's the thing. I never think, if I get that phone, I'm going to be happy. That's not, how my, that's not how this works. It's not the thought. It's never that direct of a thought process, right? I'm always like, I see a new phone, and I'm like, ooh, that looks really cool. Oh, I just want to get my hands on that and see, check out that feature, you know. Um, supposedly, this, I'm really excited about this. There's an update coming to some phones where you can update. It'll open your phone by looking at your face, even with a mask on. Yeah, see? Yeah. Right? It's pretty great. I mean, like, I see little things like that. It's like, that's going to make my life better. And I, I just, ooh, there's a part of me that just, oh, that would be so cool to have that. And so I'm not thinking, this will make me happy. That's not how our brains work. But we, we do. We chase that feeling, that excitement, that happiness that we think um, will, again, make our life good. And so as we chase those wrong things, though, again, you know, like I said, if it's a person, even the best people fail us. Even the best people will let us down. If it's something new and shiny, well, it's new and shiny for a minute, and then it breaks, or it gets a scratch on it. If you've ever had a new car, or at least a new-to-you car that was in good shape, that first scratch, isn't it heartbreaking? You know why it's heartbreaking? Because you thought that, because that thing was making you happy. You, you'd placed a little bit of happiness hope in that thing, and it got scratched. You're like, oh, now it can't make me happy, because like 0.01% of the paint of my thing is gone. Like that, but that's what it is. And so we look, those things fail us. Jobs come and jobs go. But God's word is something that is unchanging, and it is stable in life's highs and life's lows. It is able to shape us, us from the inside out so that not only are we better equipped when life goes bad or whatever, but it also grows our character so that when we're faced with those tough forks in the road, we can make the right decision even when it's hard. It shapes our character. It shapes our grace, uh, our level of grace and integrity. It helps us show kindness and mercy and gentleness and love in situations where the world tells us, no, don't do that. Be mad. Be angry. Be hateful. And it points us in a different direction. And it provides this firm foundation so that we can see clearly no matter what is going on. And we can make the right choice again and again and again. So there's going to be a lot of things that are going to promise you happiness. A lot of things that, that, that are going to offer you the world. And there's going to be a lot of things in your life that want to shape the way that you think. But nothing will do a better job than leaning your whole life on God's beautiful and life-giving word.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for the way that you have preserved your scriptures throughout history so that we can have them thousands of years after they've been written. Whether that's the, the, the ancient books of the New Testament or the even more ancient books of the Old Testament, we have them with a remarkable level of faithfulness to when they were written. And we can come back to them again and again knowing that, um, that what we're reading now is what people 2,000 years ago were reading. Um, different language, but same content. And we can trust that, yes, the world has changed, the world has moved, but your word remains the same. And your advice and, and your revealed glory in it is the same. And so as you show us the, the path to true life in scriptures, I pray that we would let your word be the primary thing that shapes and molds our hearts so that we can make the wise decisions that are honoring to you, that are a blessing to us, and that lead us to be a blessing to others. So we thank you that this, as we begin this little journey in the Psalms, that that one of the first messages we get is this powerful truth that there's a lot of things that want to influence us and a lot of things that can influence us in the wrong direction. But what we need to seek and what we need to be intent, making sure that is influencing us day by day, is your word. So thank you for that. We pray all this in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen.